1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and I'm Holly Fry. We are going to talk about a medieval mystic today, which is a topic we seem to roll around to about once every three
1: years or so. <laughs> I um, They're usually topics that you have selected. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like it's, it's one of those things that your brain just is like, I need a little mysticism now. <laughs>
0: I, sometimes I do. It's also, I took a class in college. I studied literature in college, and I took a class that was all about medieval women writers. And it was about women writing in medieval Europe, and then also women writing in Heian, Japan, which was happening at the same time. And a lot of the women who were writing in medieval Europe were uh, were mystics in, in one way. So, like, that's part of it. I really loved that class, and I loved so many of the women writers that I learned about in it. Um, even though at this point... I <laughs> It's it's starting it's starting from scratch with research. Like I don't remember any of the details from class from oh yeah twenty
1: years ago. That's uh, yeah, my brain can't retain it in any sort of clarity for that long.
0: Yeah this this time uh, we are talking about Julian of Norwich, and we've talked about other mystics before. Like I just said, there was Marjorie Kemp and Hildegard of Bingen. We haven't really talked about mysticism in general or how that fits into the context of medieval European history, and specifically Christianity in medieval Europe. So we are going to cover that context today in addition to talking about Julian.
1: And mysticism is not unique to Christianity or to Europe or to the medieval period. It's been part of religions around the world for most of human history. And secular mysticism exists as well. But when it comes to Christian mysticism in Europe, things really started flourishing in the late 13th and 14th centuries.
0: These centuries were dangerous and chaotic, and we are really going to only scratch the surface in this recap. In 1309, Pope Clement V moved the papal capital from Rome to Avignon in France. He was escaping political pressures in Rome and then also did this to appease King Philip IV of France. Over the next seven decades, the papacy became increasingly French rather than being
1: more Italian as it had been before. Then, in 1377, Pope Gregory XI moved the seat of the papacy back to Rome. But his successor, Urban VI, was difficult to work with and butted heads with the cardinals. So the cardinals elected their own pope, Clement VII, who returned to Avignon. And this set off a series of rival popes and antipopes in what became known as the Great Schism or Western Schism, which lasted until 1417. The Catholic Church was immensely powerful, and religion touched virtually every facet of people's lives. So all of this upheaval damaged the Church's reputation and spawned all kinds of chaos and uncertainty. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit
0: more in the episodes about the defenestrations of Prague, (laughs) which involved throwing people out of windows. In 1337, so to rewind a little bit, ongoing conflicts between England and France evolved into the Hundred Years' War, and that continued off and on until 1453. So the Hundred Years' War was, in a lot of places, overlapping all of this chaos in the Catholic Church. The war was connected to disputes over territory and to the line of succession of King Charles IV of France. He died without an heir, and then England tried to take control of the French throne, This war was marked by active battles as well as lengthy sieges, and it's the war where Joan of Arc, who was a French mystic in her own right, came into prominence.
1: In addition to war and religious upheaval, there was the Great European Famine, which lasted from 1315 to 1322, followed by the Black Death, which peaked in 1347. It is impossible to calculate exactly how many people died as a result of either of these, but the most common estimates are that the famine killed about 5% of the population, while the Black Death killed as much as one-third. That is a widely cited number, but it's also extrapolated from a few specific cities' records. And Members of the clergy were disproportionately affected by the Black Death, since their religious work involved caring for the sick and the dying. And
0: England specifically experienced its own problems in addition to all of this, including massive flooding in 1314 that helped set off that famine and the peasant uprising of 1381, which is also called Watt Tyler's Rebellion. This rebellion started in East Anglia, which is where Julian of Norwich lived. And it started as a response to some unpopular laws that had been passed that year. These included a poll tax and the Statute of Laborers, That second statute set a cap on workers' wages because of a labor shortage that followed the Black Death.
1: Of course, there were plenty of other things going on as well. In the face of all this chaos and war and death, many people in Europe felt like the world was corrupt and out of control and that God had turned his back on mankind. Religious thought and writing were often cynical and focused on the fear of hell and damnation. And the church also started cracking down on heresy. We should also note that there were definitely people of
0: other religions besides Catholicism in Europe at this time, but Catholicism was the overwhelming dominating force in the places that we're talking about. Mysticism was a response to all of this, and it was essentially the opposite of that trend toward fear and damnation. It can be tricky to pin down an exact definition of what is and isn't mysticism, though— In the medieval era, Christian mystics were all over the place in terms of their backgrounds and life experiences. They included members of the clergy and the laity. Some were wealthy and others were poor. Some were highly educated and others couldn't read or write. So each individual mystic might not embody every single hallmark of mysticism, but they still all
1: fit under that overall umbrella. As a general rule, Europe's Christian mystics approached God and religion through love instead of fear. They were devoted to the humanity of Jesus Christ and to having a personal relationship with him. They often described some kind of intense transformative experience in which they were awakened to a sense of the awe-inspiring love of God and Jesus. Many had visions or revelations in which they viscerally experienced God's presence and felt personally connected to the deity. Many of them wrote about or dictated those experiences in the vernacular rather than in formal Latin, even if they had formal training in Latin. Even though mystics
0: tended to approach religion through love, it wasn't necessarily a cozy hug fest. Mystics tended to be outsiders, and they often lived very solitary lives— Mystics also tended to live in really restrictive ways. The life of a mystic tended to be filled with penitence and abstinence and a sense of purification. As examples, in previous episodes, we talked about Marjorie Kemp wearing a hair shirt as a form of penance and Hildegard of Bingen interpreting serious illnesses as punishment from God for failing to
1: do what he had asked of her. Anchorites and hermits took this life of restriction, abstinence, and solitude to an extreme. Both chose to live in a solitary way, with their lives devoted to introspection, penitence, and spiritual purification. Hermits typically lived in remote, undeveloped areas, but had the freedom to move from one hermitage to another. Anchorites stayed in one place, enclosed in a small cell attached to a church or other religious site.
0: There were 214 documented anchorites and hermits in England in the 14th century. They were thought of as outsiders, but they could also be sources of counsel and guidance for the communities around them. They might act as teachers or just sort of spiritual counselors, and some of those who had been ordained as priests
1: might also act as confessors. Paul of Thebes is usually described as the first Christian hermit. He fled religious persecution in Egypt in about the year 250 and lived in a cave in the wilderness. It's not clear who the first anchorite was, but the practice was being formalized by the 12th century. The formal steps to becoming an anchorite included a religious service with mass and prayers for the dead, because after being enclosed, the anchorite was considered dead to the rest of the world. An
0: anchorite's enclosure was called an anchor hold. The recommended size for an anchor hold was 12 feet or about 3.6 meters square. But they really ranged from small nooks that you could barely turn around in to much more spacious
1: accommodations that might even have multiple rooms or accommodate guests. Anchorites typically had at least one servant and some anchor holds were large enough for the servant to live with the anchorite while still having the freedom to come and go. And this might sound like a luxury, but it was really a necessity. Since you couldn't leave the cell, you were dependent on someone else to do everything from emptying the chamber pot, to procuring food, to replenishing your supply of menstrual rags.
0: The typical layout of an anchor hold usually had three windows. One of them faced into the sanctuary of that adjoining building that the anchor hold was built into. So the anchorite could observe religious services and receive communion and speak to a confessor. Another was used to deliver things like food and other supplies and to allow the anchorite to act as a teacher or a confessor. A lot of anchorites also did some kind of work like sewing or copying and that work would be passed back and forth through the second window. The third window was for light and it had a translucent covering over it and sometimes this covering had two layers with it was basically a cutout with an opaque layer that created a shape of a cross in the light.
1: Some anchorites had a little freedom of movement. The window into the sanctuary might be more like a door, allowing them to enter the church at night. And sometimes it was the anchorite's responsibility to keep the candles lit at night, or to sound the alarm if something went wrong at the church. The second window might open out into a parlor or other area where the anchorite could sit and talk to members of the religious or secular community. And some anchor holds had small garden plots attached, which the anchorite tended. Apart from this, though, an anchorite who left their anchor hold was subject to arrest and potentially damnation.
0: Being an anchorite was one of the few religious roles that was open to women. Female anchorites were often called anchoresses, and more women than men choose to pursue this particular life. There were also women who were called vowesses, who lived a very similar life but did so in their own homes. A lot of them were widows. Although male Anchorites tended to have been priests, female Anchorites and vowesses were often laypeople.
1: Being an Anchorite was also one of the few ways that a person could pursue such a devotedly religious life without having money. Joining a convent or monastery typically required some kind of dowry. And in some places, this was the case for anchorites as well. But some anchorites were supported by the church and the local community, including through the giving of alms and bequests in people's wills. Julian of Norwich was an anchorite,
0: and we will talk about her after a sponsor break. The woman we know as Julian of Norwich was born in Norwich, East Anglia, England in 1342. I recognize natives to that place, pronounce it slightly differently in a way I can't quite replicate because it ends more like a J. Norwich was the second largest city in medieval England after London. It had several schools, multiple monastic communities, and a cathedral that dated back at least to 1103. This region prepared students for study at Oxford or Cambridge and for the priesthood. Norwich had at least 50 parish churches, four of them within half a mile of St. Julian's Church, which is where Julian was enclosed.
1: And because the Catholic Church had such a large presence in the city, Norwich also had a large community of artisans who worked on church commissions. These included architects, glassworkers, stoneworkers, painters, sculptors, and others. Norwich was also a trading hub with a thriving merchant and craft community. In other words, it was a prominent, bustling, and culturally rich city. We don't
0: know much at all about Julian's life, like literally almost nothing. But we can draw some conclusions about her growing up in Norwich. She might not have had a formal education, but she did grow up in a place that valued education, which probably influenced her understanding of and approach to the world. And even if she didn't have much formal religious instruction, this thriving religious community in Norwich would have trickled into things like the sermons that she heard during regular church attendance. She really might have been hearing a wider variety of more complex and nuanced religious thought than she would have been if she had grown up in a more remote area with the same parish priest her
1: whole life. We also know that Julian lived through all of that upheaval that we talked about before the break. The Black Death reached Norwich at the start of 1349 when Julian was seven, killing about a third of its population and half of its priests. Although the Black Death ended in 1353, plague returned to Norwich twice more before Julian became an anchoress, first in 1361 and then in 1369. And we don't know whether Julian married or had children, but her religious writing includes themes of motherhood and mothering that we're going to talk about more in a little bit and it's possible that if she did have children that they may have died in one of these plagues or from some other cause
0: julian wrote that in her girlhood she prayed for three things one was that she wanted to understand the passion of christ two she wanted to experience a physical illness that was so serious that she and everyone in her life would think she was dying This illness would let her suffer along with Christ, and the severity of this illness would let her be purged and then come back to God with a life of worship. The third thing that she prayed for was that she wanted what she described as three wounds to be made deeper in her life. In the words of Grace Warwick, who edited Julian's work in 1901, these wounds were, quote, contrition inside of sin, compassion inside of sorrow, and
1: longing after God. When she was, in her own words, 30 and a half, Julian became very ill, so sick that she and everyone around her did think that she was dying. This illness lasted for seven days, and on the fourth day, she was given last rites.
0: The seventh day of this illness was either May 8th or 13th, 1373. This date discrepancy is because in surviving copies of the manuscript, there are two different sets of Roman numerals. One says that this happened on May the VIII, and the other says that it happened on May the XIII. Her curate had brought a crucifix for her to look at in her last hours on the seventh day of her illness, At about four in the morning, Julian's mother, thinking that she had died, bent over to close her eyes. And in that moment, Julian started experiencing a series of 15 religious visions that went on until about 9 a.m. The following night, when it was clear that she was not dying, she had a 16th vision that confirmed what she had seen before.
1: Not long afterward, Julian documented what she had seen, either by writing it down or by dictating it to an amanuensis. She described herself as, quote, a simple creature that could know no letter, which suggests that she dictated her account but at the same time, her later writing reveals a complex understanding of various aspects of theology, something that it would have been really difficult for her to attain without knowing how to read. So it's possible that that quote, no, no letter, meant that she didn't know Latin, not that she couldn't read or write English. Or it's possible that she didn't know how to read when she first experienced these visions, but that she learned how to read later.
0: There's also a note at the end of one of the surviving manuscripts that that references a scribe who had written it down, but that was probably a scribe who copied the manuscript, not like the scribe who was literally writing it with her at the time. At some point after she experienced these visions, Julian was enclosed as an anchorite at the Church of St. Julian in Conisford in Norwich, According to Bloomfield's History of Norfolk, which was written in the 18th century, in the east part of the churchyard stood an anchorage, in which an anchoress or recluse dwelt until the dissolution, when the house was demolished, though the foundations may still be seen. In 1393, Lady Julian, the anchoress here, was a strict recluse and had two servants to attend her in her old age. This woman was, in these days, esteemed as one of the greatest holiness. The history goes on to name four other anchorites who followed Julian at the church, with the first one starting in 1472.
1: The first contemporaneous reference we have to her as an anchorite dates back to 1394, although she was probably enclosed well before that. Although Norwich had an extensive religious and spiritual community, there were no recorded anchorites in the city before Julian.
0: Most sources conclude that she took the name Julian naming herself after the church where she was enclosed. Although it was typical for people who became monks and nuns to leave their given name behind and take the name of a saint, which still happens today, there weren't many other documented cases of people doing the same thing when they were enclosed as an anchorite. So Julian really may have been named Julian from birth. It was not an uncommon name for women at the time. It was essentially another spelling of Julian or she might have become a nun at some point and taken the name of St. Julian when she did that before she became an anchorite. That's really speculation, though. There's not documentation that she had ever been a nun.
1: About 20 years after writing this first account of her visions, Julian wrote a much longer one, about six times as long as that first document. She went into each vision in much more detail and into how she now understood them after 20 years of inward reflection and study. And she had finished this longer document by about 1393.
0: Beyond that, we just don't have a lot of documentation. Even in this account of her visions, she doesn't talk about herself much at all. So what we have to piece together comes from other people's accounts. Marjorie Kemp, who we talked about in a previous episode, visited Julian in about 1413. And Marjorie referred to Julian as Dame, which was a title that was commonly used for nuns. Some sources point to this as evidence that Julian did become a nun before she became an anchorite, but it does appear that Marjorie is the only person who refers to her this way.
1: Most of the rest of the details we have about Julian come from other people's wills. People came to her throughout her time as an anchorite for help and guidance, and several of them remembered her in their will. We know she had at least two servants during her lifetime because someone left each of them money. Isabel Ufford,
0: who was the Countess of Suffolk, left Julian 20 shillings in her will in 1416, along with making other bequests. This was the last person to specifically name Julian in their will. But some other people left bequests to an anchoress at St. Julian's, not naming the, na- the anchoress by name, and that went on until 1429. Since Blumfeld's history of Norfolk says that the next anchoress after Julian came in 1472, it's possible that these unnamed anchoresses were Julian and that she was still living as late as 1429.
1: And after the break, we're going to talk about all those visions that we've been referencing and their influence on Christianity.
0: is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping? It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at uspscom advantage. USPS
2: Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Hey girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season 2 of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: While Julian herself called her visions showings usually with an E instead of an O in show. Her book is often published under the name Revelations of Divine Love because the overarching theme of these visions is all about the love of God and loving God. It begins, quote, This is a revelation of love that Jesus Christ, our endless bliss, made in 16 showings, or revelations particular.
1: In a simple conversational style, she walks through her series of visions. Along the way, she documents her understanding of God's love for mankind and various elements of theology. In her relating her first revelation, she writes, quote, I saw that he is unto us everything that is good and comfortable for us. He is our clothing that for love wrappeth us, claspeth us, and all encloseth us for tender love, that he may never leave us, being to us all thing that is good as to mine understanding. Her
0: tone is very comforting and reassuring and stresses over and over that God loves all of his creations. She frames this as a comfort that she needed to receive from God. And now that she has, she's sharing it with the rest of the
1: world. The visions began with Julian looking at a crucifix on what she believed was her deathbed. And many of the earliest showings are related to the crucifixion of Jesus, and specifically what was happening to him on the cross. The visions themselves are not necessarily comforting. Many of them are focused on wounds, suffering, and pain. Julian described an early showing of the blood coming out from under Jesus' crown of thorns as, quote, quick and lifelike, and horrifying and dreadful, sweet and lovely. But no matter how graphic the descriptions are of Jesus on the cross, each one circles back to Julian gaining a deeper knowledge of the scope and breadth of divine love.
0: Julian's accounts of the earliest showings mainly involve the vision itself and her understanding of what the vision means— Sometimes God or Jesus speaks to her or asks her a question, which she answers. And at first, these are pretty straightforward. So Jesus asks, Art thou well pleased that I suffered for thee? And Julian answers, Yea, good Lord, I thank thee. Yea, good Lord, blessed mayst thou be. Or God asks, Wilt thou see her, referring to the Virgin Mary, before showing Julian a vision of the Virgin Mary?
1: But in later visions, Julian becomes more active and starts asking direct questions about religious issues. The 13th revelation begins, quote, After this, the Lord brought to my mind the longing that I had to him afore, and I saw that nothing led me but sin. And so I looked generally upon us all, and we thought, if sin had not been, we should all have been clean and like to our Lord as he made us.
0: This is essentially asking why God didn't just use his power to prevent sin in the first place, leaving mankind pure rather than in a state of suffering, basically preventing all these problems. Jesus answers Julian with the most famous line from her showings, quote, "...it behooved that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well." The 13th revelation continues on from this, largely as a meditation on the idea of all shall be well.
1: In her showings, Julian also writes about Jesus in a way that probably would have been considered heretical if it had gotten wider recognition while she was alive. That has happened in more recent years as well. While reflecting on her first 14 visions, Julian meditates on the idea of God and Jesus as a mother— Quote, the mother may give her child suck of her milk, but our precious mother, Jesus, he may feed us with himself and doeth it full courteously and full tenderly with the blessed sacrament that is precious food of my life. And with all the sweet sacraments, he sustaineth us full mercifully and graciously.
0: She later goes on to say, "Quote "'This fair, lovely word, mother, "'it is so sweet and so close in nature to itself "'that it may not verily be said of none but him, "'and to her that is very mother of him and of all. "'To the property of motherhood "'belongeth natural love, wisdom, and knowing, "'and it is good. For though it be so that our body forthbringing be but little, low, and simple in regard of our spiritual forthbringing, yet it is he that doeth it in the creatures by whom that is done.
1: Julian's 15th revelation is one of closure. She writes about how the whole time she was receiving these visions, she hoped that she would, quote, be delivered of this world and of this life. But in this last revelation, she has shown how being removed from pain and want is a reward for patience in abiding by God's will. She later says,
0: quote, And in this he brought to mind the property of a glad giver. A glad giver taketh but little heed of the thing that he giveth, but all his desire and all his intent is to please him and solace him to whom he giveth it. And if the receiver take the gift highly and thankfully, then the courteous giver setteth at naught all his cost and all his travail, for joy and delight that he hath pleased and solaced him that he loveth. And then after this, God leaves her with the thought, quote, what should it then aggrieve thee to suffer a while? Sith it is my will and my worship.
1: Julian had her 16th vision the following night as she was beginning to recover and her life was no longer in danger. She writes of this one as gaining insight into her own soul. But in it, she is also visited by Satan, who she calls the fiend. She thinks to herself, quote, Thou hast now great busyness to keep thee in the faith, for that thou shouldst not be taken of the enemy. Wouldst thou now from this time evermore be so busy to keep thee from sin? This were a good and a sovereign occupation. Julian's book ends
0: with several chapters of her personal understanding of all these visions. By her book, I mean the longer version of all of this. It wraps up with her overall sense of the whole of them, being, quote, "'Wouldst thou learn thy Lord's meaning in this thing? Learn it well. Love was his meaning. Who showed it thee? Love. What showed he thee? Love. Wherefore showed it he? For love. Hold thee therein, and thou shalt learn, and know more in the same. But thou shalt never know, nor learn therein, other thing without end.'" Thus was I learned that love was our Lord's meaning.
1: We know that Julian viewed this whole experience as a gift from God, that she then went on to share with others. And unlike many of the other books written by anchorites and hermits during this time, she seems to have meant her work for everyone, not just for other solitary religious people. And this was remarkable. Julian wrote surely, confidently, and authoritatively about religion when that really wasn't considered to be women's domain. And she did it for ordinary people, not only for her own religious circle. She also did not shy away from material that could have led to her being condemned for heresy. Yeah,
0: there were other women anchorites who were writing things that were sort of meant as guides for other people like themselves. So sort of a guide of how to be an anchorite or theological uh, questions for, for other anchorites. But she really seemed to want this to be a work for everyone. And we know that people were talking to and learning from Julian while she lived, but it doesn't appear that many people were really reading her work until much later. Some of this is because of attitudes in England in the decades after her death. So in 1401, while she was still living, King Henry IV ordered for heretics to be burned, and that included anyone found with heretical books, which
1: Julian's showings could have been. The oldest surviving copy of the short version of her account dates back to the 15th century. There are three handwritten manuscripts dating back to the 17th century. And the first time it was printed was in 1670, almost 300 years after that first religious experience. And it probably came from a 1650 manuscript. The first people who wrote about reading Julian's work were three Benedictines from England who had been exiled to France. And that happened in the 17th century.
0: The Church of St. Julian was largely destroyed on June 27, 1942, when it was bombed during World War II. By then, it was affiliated with the Church of England rather than the Catholic Church. The structure was rebuilt in the 1950s, and at that time, the site of the former anchorite cell was turned into a shrine to Julian, although that shrine is probably larger than the actual anchor hold was.
1: Had history played out differently, Julian of Norwich and several of her contemporary English mystics might have been canonized. But the Protestant Reformation began about 100 years after her death, and England split away from the Catholic Church. Today, she has an unofficial feast day. In the Catholic calendar, it's on May 13th, while the Anglican, Episcopal, and Lutheran churches list it as May 8th. She has become a symbol of comfort and hope in the centuries since she lived. The Order of Julian of Norwich was established within the Episcopalian Church in 1985.
0: That's Julian of Norwich. Her life was so strange, especially to a modern eye, because (laughs) she was in this anchor hold for a lengthy amount of it, as far as we know. And at the same time, like, her writing is just so comforting, (laughs) Just over and over and over. And it's like, and, uh, but God loves all of his creatures and it's great. Um, it's sort of her whole underlying tone throughout all of it.
1: Do you have a little bit of uh, listener mail?
0: Yes, I do have some listener mail. This is from Aubrey. Aubrey says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I recently finished listening to the back catalog of episodes of Stuff You Missed in History Class, and now I'm sad that I have to wait impatiently for new episodes. Thank you for keeping me company through many boring hours of work. I feel like we're friends, but not in a creepy way. I know we're really not friends. (laughs) I love that sentence. I wanted to write you today because of something I just learned that I find really exciting and fascinating. I think Holly in particular might be interested. Last week, I visited a small museum in Saratoga County, New York, and had the opportunity to chat with one of the museum's researchers. The museum includes local archives, and I was looking for information on my historic home. I happened to mention some of the odd things I'd found while renovating, such as a child-sized, possibly 19th century, leather shoe, encased in horsehair plaster in a wall. I imagined that a frustrated plasterer with tiny feet had kicked the wall while it was drying and then, unable to free the shoe, had plastered over it. But the researcher, whose name is Anne, had a different take, was a concealed garment. She explained that concealing a garment in a wall or chimney to ward off evil was a tradition brought to the U.S. by the British. She said that often a child's outgrown shoe would be used if there were no younger siblings to inherit it. Not knowing any better, I removed the shoe from my wall last year and have now opened my home to invasion by evil spirits live and learn. I thought this would be a fun episode suggestion or that you might enjoy reading about it. Here's a link to an article I found. Thanks for being awesome, Aubrey. Thank you for this note, Aubrey. This uh, this actually came in a while ago. Uh, It came in about six weeks ago, and it caused me confusion because I had this moment where I was like, I remember talking about this on the show, though. I felt like Holly and I had this whole conversation about putting shoes in walls, and about witches getting stuck in the
1: shoes because they can't go backwards. And and I said I, a witch would have to fight me because she's not right? taking my shoe. <laughs>
0: you did say that. Um, and then I eventually realized there is a, a thing that happens every year here in uh, in Boston and a couple of places. Uh, besides Boston, called History Camp that is sort of an unconference where people uh, basically volunteer their time to to deliver papers, and um, it's a, a cool opportunity to go and learn bits of things about lots of different aspects of history. And there, uh, I saw a whole panel that was about concealed garments and walls and witch markings on walls and all of that uh, stuff related to belief in the supernatural um, in Colonial and afterward New England, and I sort of conflated that whole experience with our podcast and made it into something we had talked
1: about. No, no, what we did talk about it because I had we that, did we talked about it during a live show. Okay, um, you are not crazy. I mean, you may okay. be, but this isn't the proof. <laughs> um, I'm not a medical professional who could determine <laughs> these things. Uh, yeah, uh, we have talked about it, and I think that made it. On to the show, because I vaguely recall another listener mail or someone commenting about um, me fighting a witch. Um, But we have talked about it, although it wasn't the subject of a show. It came up during a live show.
0: Okay, I really like I had this whole thing where I was searching our website and I was searching my folder full of old episode scripts and I was racking my brain like I remember talking about this. When was it? I'm glad to know now that that was a real conversation and not just a total fabrication of my <laughs> mind being like this thing unrelated to the show. Now all of you listeners have heard me work through <laughs> my own memory. Uh which i wish was still as sharp as it was when i was 20 <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean i so, i can't remember anything so you'll get except i remember that conversation because i said i would fight a witch for my shoe
0: you did you did. So thank you, Aubrey, for uh, helping me rekindle that memory. Thank you, Holly, also, for helping me.
1: <laughs> Together, we'll rekindle. figure it out. Between the we two will. of us, we can assemble memory.
0: <laughs> we can. We can. We'll probably get helpful email, emails from people who either have heard this on the podcast or were at the live show that we're talking about. Uh, and then we'll be like, oh, yeah. Anyway. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we love to get email. We do read them all. We are not great at answering them, but we do read them all. We are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are also all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can come to our website, which is MissedinHistory.com. You can find show notes to all the episodes Holly and I have ever done. Today's show notes includes links to the entire text of uh, Julian's book, And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows